Chapter Seven of the Amateur Immigrant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Amateur Immigrant by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter Seven: Personal Experience and Review. Travel is of two kinds, and this voyage of mine across the ocean combined both. Out of my country and myself I go, sings the old poet, and I was not only travelling out of my country in latitude and longitude. But out of myself in diet, associates, and consideration. Part of the interest and a great deal of the amusement flowed, at least to me, from this novel situation in the world. I found that I had what they call fallen in life with absolute success and verisimilitude. I was taken for a steerage passenger. No one seemed surprised that I should be so, and there was nothing but the brass plate between decks to remind me that I had once been a gentleman. In a former book describing a former journey, I expressed some wonder that I could be readily and naturally taken for a peddler, and explained the accident by the difference of language and manners between England and France. I must now take a humbler view, for here I was amongst my own countrymen, somewhat roughly clad, to be sure, but with every advantage of speech and manner. And I am bound to confess that I pass for nearly anything you please except an educated gentleman. The sailors called me mate. The officers addressed me as my man. My comrades accepted me without hesitation for a person of their own character and experience, but with some curious information. One, a mason himself, believed I was a mason. Several, and among these at least one of the seamen, judged me to be a petty officer in the American navy, and I was so often set down for a practical engineer that at last I had not the heart to deny it. From all these guesses, I drew one conclusion, which told against the insight of my companions. They might be close observers in their own way and read the manners in the hand, but it was plain they did not extend their observation to the hands. To the saloon passengers also, I sustained my part without a hitch. It is true I came very little in their way, but when we did encounter, there was no recognition in their eye, although I confess I sometimes courted it in silence. All these, my inferiors and equals, took me like the transformed monarch in the story, for a mere common human man. They gave me a hard, dead look. With the flesh about the eye kept unrelaxed. With the women, this surprised me less, as I had already experimented on the sex by going aboard through a suburban part of London, simply attired in a sleeve waistcoat. The result was curious. I then learned, for the first time, and by the exhaustive process, how much attention ladies are accustomed to bestow on all male creatures of their own station. For in my humble rig. Each one who went by me caused me a certain shock of surprise and a sense of something wanting. In my normal circumstances, it appeared every young lady must have paid me some tribute of a glance, and though I had often not detected it when it was given, I was well aware of its absence when it was withheld. My height seemed to decrease with every woman who passed me, for she passed me like a dog. This is one of my grounds for supposing that what are called the upper classes may sometimes produce a disagreeable impression in what are called the lower, and I wish some one would continue my experiment, 
and find out at exactly what stage of toilette a man becomes invisible to the well-regulated female eye. Here on shipboard the matter was put to a more complete test, for even with the addition of speech and manner, I passed among ladies for precisely the average man of the steerage. It was one afternoon that I saw this demonstrated. A very plainly dressed woman was taken ill on deck. I think I had the luck to be present at every sudden seizure during all the passage, and on this occasion found myself in a place of importance supporting the sufferer. There was not only a large crowd immediately around us, but a considerable knot of saloon passengers leaning over our heads from the hurricane deck. One of these, an elderly managing woman, hailed me with counsels. Of course I had to reply, and as the talk went on, I began to discover that the whole group took me for the husband. I looked upon my new wife, poor creature, with mingled feelings, and I must own she had not even the appearance of the poorest class of city servant-maids, but looked more like a country wench who should have been employed at roadside inn. Now was the time for me to go and study the brass plate. To such as officers of knew about me, the doctor, the purser, and the stewards, I appeared in the light of a broad joke. The fact that I spent the better part of my day in writing had gone abroad over the ship, and tickled them all prodigiously. Whenever they met me they referred to my absurd occupation with familiarity and breadth of humorous intention. Their manner was well calculated to remind me of my fallen fortunes. You may be sincerely amused by the amateur literary efforts of a gentleman, but you scarce publish the feeling to his face. Well, they would say, still writing, and the smile would widen into a laugh. The purser came one day into the cabin, and touched to the heart by my misguided industry, offered me some other kind of writing, for which, he added pointedly, you will be paid. This was nothing else than to copy out the list of passengers. Another trick of mine which told against my reputation was my choice of roosting-place in an active draught upon the cabin floor. I was openly jeered and flouted for this eccentricity, and a considerable knot would sometimes gather at the door to see my last dispositions for the night. This was embarrassing, but I learnt to support the trial with equanimity. Indeed, I may say that, upon the whole, my new position sat lightly and naturally upon my spirits. I accepted the consequences with readiness, and found them far from difficult to bear. The steerage conquered me. I conformed more and more to the type of the place, not only in manner, but at heart, growing hostile to the officers and cabin passengers who looked down upon me, and day by day greedier for small delicacies. Such was the result, as I fancy, of a diet of bread and butter, soup and porridge. We think we have no sweet tooth as long as we are full to the brim of molasses. But a man must have sojourned in the workhouse before he boasts himself indifferent to dainties. Every evening, for instance, I was more and more preoccupied about our doubtful fare at tea. If it was delicate, my heart was much lightened. If it was but broken fish, I was proportionately downcast. 
The offer of a little jelly from a fellow-passenger more provident than myself caused a marked elevation in my spirits. And I would have gone to the ship's end and back again for an oyster or a chipped fruit. In other ways I was content with my position. It seemed no disgrace to be confounded with my company, for I may as well declare I found their manners as gentle and becoming as those of any other class. I do not mean that my friends could have sat down without embarrassment and laughable disaster at the table of a duke. That does not imply an inferiority of breeding, but a difference of usage. Thus I flatter myself that I conducted myself well among my fellow-passengers. Yet my most ambitious hope is not to have avoided faults, but to have committed as few as possible. I know too well that my tact is not the same as their tact and that my habit of a different society constituted not only no qualification, but a positive disability to move easily and becomingly in this. When Jones complimented me, because I managed to behave very pleasantly to my fellow-passengers, was how he put it, I could follow the thought in his mind, and knew his compliment to be such as we pay foreigners on their proficiency in English. I dare say this praise was given to me immediately on the back of some unpardonable solecism, which had led him to review my conduct as a whole. We are all ready to laugh at the ploughman among lords. We should consider also the case of a lord amongst ploughmen. I have seen a lawyer in the house of a Hebridean fisherman, and I know, but nothing will induce me to disclose, which of these two was the better gentleman. Some of our finest behaviour, though it looks well enough from the boxes, may seem even brutal to the gallery. We boast too often of manners that are parochial rather than universal, that, like a country wine, will not bear transportation for a hundred miles, nor from the parlour to the kitchen. To be a gentleman is to be one all the world over and in every relation and grade of society. It is a high calling to which a man must first be born, and then devote himself for life. And, unhappily, the manners of a certain so-called upper grade have a kind of currency, and meet with a certain external acceptation through all the others, and this tends to keep us well satisfied with slight acquirements, and the amateurish accomplishments of a clique. But manners, like art, should be human and central. Some of my fellow-passengers, as I now moved among them in a relation of equality, seemed to me excellent gentlemen. They were not rough, nor hasty, nor disputatious, debated pleasantly, differed kindly, were helpful, gentle, patient, and placid. The type of manners was plain, and even heavy. There was little to please the eye, but nothing to shock and I thought gentleness lay more nearly at the spring of behaviour than in many more ornate and delicate societies. I say delicate where I cannot say refined. A thing may be fine like ironwork without being delicate like lace. There was here less delicacy. The skin supported more callously the natural surface of events. The mind received more bravely the crude facts of human existence but I do not think there was less effective refinement, less consideration for others, less polite suppression of self. 
I speak of the best among my fellow passengers, for in the steerage as well as in the saloon there is a mixture. Those, then, with whom I found myself in sympathy, and with whom I may therefore hope to write with a greater measure of truth, were not only as good in their manners, but endowed with very much the same natural capacities, and about as wise in deduction as the bankers and barristers of what is called society. One and all were too much interested in disconnected facts, and loved information for its own sake with too rash a devotion. But people in all classes display the same appetite as they gorge themselves daily with the miscellaneous gossip of the newspaper. Newspaper reading, as far as I can make out, is often rather a sort of brown study than an act of culture. I have myself palmed off yesterday's issue on a friend, and seen him re-peruse it for a continuance of minutes with an air at once refreshed and solemn. Workmen, perhaps, pay more attention, but though they may be eager listeners, they have really seemed to me either willing or careful thinkers. Culture is not measured by the greatness of the field which is covered by our knowledge, but by the nicety with which we can perceive relations in that field, whether great or small. Workmen, certainly those who are on board with me, I found wanting in this quantity or habit of the mind. They did not perceive relations, but leapt to a so-called cause, and thought the problem settled. Thus the cause of everything in England was the form of government, and the cure for all evils was, by consequence, a revolution. It is surprising how many of them said this, and that none should have the definite thought in his head as he said it. Some hated the church because they disagreed with it. Some hated Lord Beaconsfield because of war and taxes. All hated the masters, possibly with reason. But these failings were not at the root of the matter. The true reasoning of their souls ran thus. I have not got on. I ought to have got on. If there was a revolution, I should get on. How? They had no idea. Why? Because, because, well, look at America. To be politically blind is no distinction. We are all so, if you come to that. At bottom, as it seems to me, there is but one question in modern home politics, though it appears in many shapes, and that is the question of money. And but one political remedy, that the people should grow wiser and better. My workmen fellow passengers were as impatient and dull of hearing on the second of these points as any member of Parliament but they had some glimmerings of the first. They would not hear of improvement on their part, but wished the world made over again in a crack, so that they might remain improvident and idle and debauched, and yet enjoy the comforts and respect that should accompany the opposite virtues. And it was in this expectation, as far as I could see, that many of them were now on their way to America. But on the point of money they saw clearly enough that inland politics so far as they were concerned, were reducible to the question of annual income, a question which should long ago have been settled by a revolution, they did not know how, and which they were now about to settle for themselves, once more they knew not how, by crossing the Atlantic in a steamship of considerable tonnage. And yet it has been amply shown them that the second or income question is itself nothing, and may as well be left undecided, if there be no wisdom and virtue to profit by the change. 
It is not by a man's purse, but by his character that he is rich or poor. Barney will be poor, Alec will be poor, Mackay will be poor, let them go where they will, and wreck all the governments under heaven, they will be poor till they die. Nothing is perhaps more notable in the average workman than his surprising idleness, and the candour with which he confesses to the failing. It has to me been always something of relief to find the poor, as a general rule, so little oppressed with work. I can, in consequence, enjoy my own more fortunate beginning with a better grace. The other day I was living with a farmer in America, an old frontiersman, who had worked and fought, hunted and farmed, from his childhood up. He excused himself for his defective education, on the grounds that he had been overworked from first to last. Even now, he said, anxious as he was, he had never the time to take up a book. In consequence of this, I observed him closely. He was occupied for four, or at the extreme outside, for five hours out of twenty-four, and then principally in walking, and the remainder of the day he passed in born idleness, either eating fruit or standing with his back against the door. I have known men do hard literary work all morning, and then undergo quite as much physical fatigue by way of relief, has satisfied this power from frontiersmen for the day. He at least, like all the educated class, did so much homage to industry as to persuade himself he was industrious. But the average mechanic recognises his idleness with effrontery. He has even, as I am told, organised it. I give the story as it was told to me, and it was told to me for a fact. A man fell from a housetop in the city of Aberdeen, and was brought into hospital with broken bones. He was asked what was his trade, and he replied that he was a tapper. No one had ever heard of such a thing before. The officials were filled with curiosity. They besought an explanation. It appeared that, when a party of slaters were engaged upon a roof, they would now and then be taken with a fancy for the public house. Now a seamstress, for example, might slip away from her work, and no one would be the wiser. But if these fellows adjourned, the tapping of the mallets would cease, and thus the neighbourhood would be advertised of their defection. Hence the career of the tapper. He has to do the tapping and keep up an industrious bustle on the housetop during the absence of the slaters. When he taps for only one or two, the thing is child's play but when he has to represent a whole troop, it is then that he earns his money in the sweat of his brow. Then must he bound from spot to spot, reduplicate, triplicate, sex-duplicate his single personality, and swell and hasten his blows, till he produces a perfect illusion for the ear, and you would swear that a crowd of emulous masons were continuing merrily to roof the house. It must be a strange sight from an upper window." I heard nothing on board of the tapper, but I was astonished at the stories told by my companions. Skulking, shirking, malingering were all established tactics, it appeared. They could see no dishonesty when a man who has paid for an hour's work gives half an hour's constant idling in its place. Thus the tapper would refuse to watch for the police during a burglary, and call himself an honest man. He is not sufficiently recognised that our race detests to work. If I thought that I should have to work every day as my life as hard as I am working now, 
I shall be tempted to give up the struggle. And the workman early begins on his career of toil. He has never had his fill of holidays in the past, and his prospect of holidays in the future is both distant and uncertain. In the circumstances it would require a high degree of virtue not to snatch alleviations for the moment. There were many good talkers on the ship, and I believe good talking of a certain sort is a common accomplishment among working men. Where books are comparatively scarce, a great amount of information will be given and received by word of mouth, and this tends to produce good talkers, and what is no less needful for conversation, good listeners. They could all tell a story with effect. I am sometimes tempted to think that the less literary class shows always better in narration. They have so much more patience with detail, are so much less hurried to reach the points, and preserve so much faster a proportion amongst the facts. At the same time their talk is dry. They pursue a topic ploddingly, have not an agile fancy, do not throw sudden lights from unexpected quarters, and when the talk is over they often leave the matter where it was. They mark time instead of marching. They think only to argue, not to reach new conclusions, and use their reason rather as a weapon of offence than as a tool for self-improvement. Hence the talk of some of the cleverest was unprofitable in result, because there was no give and take. They would grant you as little as possible for premise, and begin to dispute under an oath to conquer or die. But the talk of a workman is apt to be more interesting than that of a wealthy merchant, because the thoughts, hopes and fears of which the workman's life is built lie nearer to necessity and nature. They are more immediate to human life. An income calculated by the week is a far more human thing than one calculated by the year, and a small income simply from its smallness than a large one. I never wearied listening to the details of a workman's economy, because every item stood for some real pleasure. If he could afford pudding twice a week, you know that twice a week the man ate with genuine gusto and was physically happy. While if you learn that a rich man has seven courses a day, ten to one half of them remain untasted, and the whole is but misspent money and a weariness to the flesh. The difference between England and America to a working man was thus more humanly put to me by a fellow passenger. In America, said he, you get pies and puddings. I do not hear enough in economy books of pies and pudding. A man lives in and for the delicacies, adornments and accidental attributes of life, such as pudding to eat and pleasant books and theatres to occupy his leisure. The bare terms of existence would be rejected with contempt by all. If a man feeds on bread and butter, soup and porridge, his appetite grows wolfish after dainties. And the workman dwells in a borderland, and is always within sight of those cheerless regions where life is more difficult to sustain than worth sustaining. Every detail of our existence, whether it is worthwhile to cross the ocean after pie and pudding, is made alive and enthralling by the presence of genuine desire, but it is all one to me whether Croesus has a hundred or a hundred thousands in the bank. There is more adventure in the life of a working man who descends as a common soldier into the battle of life than in that of a millionaire who sits apart in an office, 
like von Moltke, and only directs the manoeuvres by telegraph. Give me to hear about the career of him who is in the thick of business, to whom one change of market means empty belly, and another a copious and savoury meal. This is not the philosophical, but the human side of economics. It interests like a story, and the life of all who are thus situated partakes in a small way the charm of Robinson Crusoe, for every step is critical, and human life is presented to you naked and verging to its lowest terms. End of chapter 7